Welcome to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We're excited you've joined us as we hear what God has to say to us through Scripture and this message from Pastor Paul. Well, as we get into the story of the birth of Jesus, I want to tell you there are really two threads that run throughout the entire Bible. And those two threads are promise and fulfillment. Maybe the most basic way of understanding this is that much, if not most, of the Old Testament, we could fit into the promise category. These things are being promised to happen. The New Testament is then the fulfillment. As it all comes true through the person and work of Jesus. So the birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of a series of promises. Uh, we may refer to them as prophecies. 300 prophecies from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled that were given hundreds, sometimes even thousands of years in advance. God, who is sovereign over and foreshadowing all of the future, knowing exactly the detail that he would share his plan with humanity, his plan in the coming of Jesus to human history. One of those promises occurs to us from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7. In it, God says that the answer to human sin is Emmanuel. It's a title, a description, which means God with us. So God is coming to human history. God is coming to visit this planet, visit His people. Now, how do we know this is all true? Well, what we want to first look at are the historical facts of Jesus' birth. Luke, who writes this gospel, is a very well-educated medical doctor, historian. He has made it quite a life's work of going and finding the witnesses, the eyewitnesses of all the accounts of Jesus' life. We would understand that he would find Mary and interview her. He would find other people that the gospel stories represent and go and, and interview them and find out, okay, what were the details? How do you remember this happening? And with the birth of Jesus, we're introduced to a number of people who were present when it was taking place. A number of people who are historically factual people, existed. History proves it, not just in the Bible, but outside the Bible as well. The first person that we are introduced to in Luke's gospel in this account in chapter 2 is Caesar Augustus. He was a real historical figure. Luke says that Jesus was born when Caesar Augustus was ruling. Now let me tell you a little bit about this significant political leader. He ruled over the Roman Empire, which is one of the most far-reaching, prominent empires in the history of the world. And it was that his he was the adoptive son of Julius Caesar. Maybe you've heard of that guy. So, in actuality, Julius Caesar was his grand-uncle, was Caesar 
Augustus's grand uncle. And so what Julius Caesar did was adopt his grandnephew, bringing him into the family, bringing him into an heir for the Roman Empire. Needless to say, Caesar Augustus was not a godly man. He did not follow. He did not love the God of the Bible. Well, working under him is the governor, Quirinius. One of the things that Luke tells us is that during Caesar Augustus's oversight is that a census was taken. We read that. Melanie read that for us. The census was for two reasons. One is you get an accountability of all the citizens in your kingdom. Well, you can extract taxes from them so it builds up your wealth. The second reason is you find out how many adult males there are of military age so that in the event that you had to defend your kingdom, you can conscript <laughs> these folks. And so the reason for the census, generally speaking, was politically and financially motivated. That's what's going on when Caesar Augustus is in control and Quirinius is his right-hand man. Next in the section, Luke introduces us to Joseph and Mary. They are the complete opposite of Caesar Augustus and Governor Quirinius. They're rural, not urban. They're poor, not rich. They're powerless, not powerful. They worship God. They're not worshiped as gods. And at this point, Joseph and Mary were engaged to be married. It's an engagement that lasted 12 months. They lived in a small town of Nazareth. Joseph is a man whose work is as a carpenter. So picture a, a guy with calloused hands used to swinging a mallet, a hammer. Joseph has a hard job but he's working at it. And he's hoping to marry the girl of his dreams and God showed up through the angel Gabriel and announced to them previously, Mary, God has found favor with you. You are gonna have the promise of Isaiah in you by the Holy Spirit. Even though you're a virgin, you are gonna be with child by the Holy Spirit and give birth as a miracle to this Emmanuel. Mary must have been despised by her community. Who would ever believe such a story? Once Joseph believed and he had to tell it to others, yeah, I believe Mary. What a fool he must have been seen as. Nonetheless, they loved one another, they were devoted to God, they trusted God, they loved God, they were ready to serve God, they were willing to be called by God, and so she's pregnant, and they have not yet consummated their marriage, and it comes to pass that the census is to be taken, and every, through the male lineage, every family must go to their town of origin to register. Now Joseph is from the line of David, King David, 
heralded King David from the Old Testament. King David began as a little shepherd boy in Bethlehem. He grew up in Bethlehem. Even as he became king, family reunions were going to happen in Bethlehem. And so being a descendant out of Bethlehem, Joseph in that line, he's ordered, along with Mary, to leave Nazareth and make a roughly 90-mile journey. The problem is, as one translation puts it, she is now great with child. She's ready to have a baby. Now, any of you women who have been at that point about to give birth, last thing you'd want to do is a 90-mile walk through the wilderness <laughs> to give birth to God, nonetheless. That's a terrifying prospect. But God, in His sovereignty, needs to get this couple from Nazareth to Bethlehem to fulfill the promises of Scripture, that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. So they make the journey. They start that 90-mile journey. Maybe she's on the back of, a, of an animal. We always guess that. We always see that in Christmas cards. We don't know that to be true. Scripture doesn't tell us. However, she got there. And she didn't give birth along the way. That wasn't part of God's plan. She wasn't, she wasn't supposed to. Even though there would have been bumps and ruts and twists and turns in that road, whether she was on an animal or walking by foot, or however she got there. They actually arrive in Bethlehem, and lo and behold, Mary gives birth to Jesus. Now, they're not the only ones who were from the line of David having to go to Bethlehem, so this Streets are filled, the town is filled, the inns are filled. There's no room to rent. And so as the story is told, she gives birth. And Jesus is placed in a manger, a stable, a feeding trough. Jesus is born laid in a feeding trough. <laughs> the King of kings and Lord of lords and his first throne is among the animals. So these are the characters in the story. Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. And behind all of this, if you haven't already guessed, God is at work. God is behind all of this, and it reveals to us His providence and sovereignty. That God, who is God over all nations and kings and kingdoms, that He is above all and He is Lord. Now, Caesar has made this decree because he is greedy and because he's got power. He has made the decision to enroll everybody so he can get more money and be able to defend his kingdom. And yet God used that decree of Caesar Augustus to fulfill prophecy. And so behind all of this, God is working it out so that 
the virgin, would give birth to Emmanuel, God with us, in the town of Bethlehem. So this is historical truth. Christianity is rooted in the person and work of Jesus and in historical facts. These are historical facts. They are summarized and recounted even by those who are not Christian historians living at the time. And my guess is that most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with these historical facts. If nothing else, every Christmas you turn on TV and you see the Peanuts cartoon character, but what does Linus always lead us to? (laughs) It's the nativity scene. Mary, Joseph, baby Jesus in the manger, all the animals, yeah, they're there. We see it every Christmas. Now, these historical facts are important. They're very important. But they really aren't all that meaningful unless we proceed from the historical to the theological. In other words, what do they mean? What is God doing? What is God accomplishing and achieving through the birth of Jesus. Why is Jesus born? And to answer that, I'll give you one word, incarnation. It's a Latin word that means in the flesh. It is the doctrine, the doctrine of incarnation is the doctrine that God, who is spirit, took upon himself human form and comes as the man, Jesus Christ. That means he was God in the beginning. And the Gospel of John would tell us that Jesus, in fact, was God. And God put on flesh. He became a man. The man, Jesus Christ, that's what incarnation means. The Creator entered creation. He took on flesh and entered into life on earth to live among us. That's what it means to call him Emmanuel, God with us. You see, no other religion in the world is based upon a God who leaves his throne and stoops to our level. Every other religion is trying to be good enough to merit God's attention. But the God of the Bible doesn't come to us, form a relationship with us, and love us because we're good enough. He does all of that because he is good. So the historical is Jesus is born. The theological is incarnation, what it means that God has entered into human history. Lastly then, what are the practical implications of all of this for you and me? What does this mean with my life and your life? There's much more that could be said, but let me give you a couple of ideas. First of all, what it tells us is that Jesus is like us. That's how, this is how it's going to change our lives. Let me read to you from the New Testament this passage from Hebrews. The writer says, For we do not have a high priest who is, that's speaking of Jesus, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is like us. You see, in other religions, the concept of God is that he is far away. He's distant. And he sure is not going to get involved in this world. The life of sin and sinners on this earth are just too much of a mess and uncomfortable and painful and despicable. So God isn't going to get involved. He may send an angel. He may drop down a command from on high. But he's not going to come down. The story of the incarnation is that he did. His name is Jesus. What this means is that none of us can look to Jesus and say, you don't understand, Jesus. You don't know what it's like to grow up. You don't know what it's like to be a teenager. You don't have family that's turned their back on you and friends betray you. You don't know what it's like to be homeless, poor, mocked, lied to, beaten, abused, arrested, suffering, dying. And Jesus would say, actually, I do. I do know what it's like to experience every bit of that. And in connecting to this Hebrews passage, Jesus is also our high priest. Now, the high priest in the Jewish faith was the holiest man there. There's only one high priest at a time. And the purpose of the high priest, of all the priests, but the high priest in particular, was to represent God to the people, God's love to the people, and to bring the sins of the people before God to be forgiven. Jesus is our great high priest. He is the one who bridges that gap. He's the only one that we need. So the first comfort is Jesus is like us. But if Jesus were just like us, that in and of itself would not be helpful because it couldn't affect change. If he is no more than you and me as a 100% human, there's not a whole lot that he can do for us. So let me confuse you. (laughs) Jesus is like us, but Jesus is also unlike us. And I'll try to clarify that. Going back to Hebrews, another passage. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like human high priests, who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he, that is Jesus Christ, did this once for all, this once for all sacrifice, when he offered up himself. So how Jesus is like us is that he has experienced everything that we have. How he's unlike us is that he 
doesn't sin when he is tempted. Was he tempted? Yes. Did he sin? No. And that's where his life is different than us. And every time then that we are tempted, we can come to him. And Jesus can say, I know. I know how to get you around this. I avoided it myself. And when we do sin, we run to Jesus and he'll say, I died for your sin and I'll forgive you. I'll get you out of that mess that you're in. I'll change you so that your life becomes more like mine. That's what he does. He changes people. He's unlike us in that he does not sin and therefore his sacrifice is 100% acceptable. And the only one who could die in our place. So if scripture is true, Jesus is real. He came to earth to bring us into a vital, life-changing relationship with the Father. The final question is this. Do you believe it? By faith, have you connected with this Jesus? If so, if you have connected with Jesus, then you already enjoy this wonderful experience that Jesus came to make you like him, to work into your life to bring you freedom and grace and forgiveness and wholeness and love without end. He wants to take your sin and replace it with his righteousness. He wants to take your condemnation and replace it with salvation. He wants to take your separation from the Father and give you reconciliation with the Father. You see how all this works, it's amazing. Look at all that Jesus did. Historically, Jesus born in Bethlehem to the Virgin Mary. Theologically, the incarnation, God is with us. Practically, we believe that by faith, we are reconciled to the Father. And we're covered by grace all of this because Jesus didn't avoid coming into the mess that this world and our lives bring Jesus gets in it with us he comes to this world to the culture to the sinners to the pain to the hardship to the idolatry he goes to the outcast, the demon-possessed, the poor, the marginalized, the adulterers, the alcoholics, the poor, the proud, the arrogant, the rich. He gets in it. He's not a God who's going to stand back and say, oh, I'm not going to get involved. That looks like a lot of work. Instead, he gets in it. And that's what Christmas is all about. I'm going to pray, and, and if you've never really opened your life to Jesus Christ, maybe you know all about Christmas. 
You know the stories. You've heard them. You've seen them on TV. But maybe tonight, God has met the desires of your heart some way. And you want to walk into a relationship with Him, then you pray too. And if you receive Him, tell someone. You can share that with me after the service. Tell someone because that news is too good to keep to yourself. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for us as a people. I pray for those who do not know you. Maybe they know religion, they know morality, they know spirituality, but not Jesus. And I pray that through the Holy Spirit, you would open their understanding. That this history would not be confined to just the past, but it would result in a changed life. And that today they would join us in the worship of Jesus as God and Savior Jesus as we get ready to partake of communion. So we remember the incarnation. We're going to remember the body broken. The blood spilt. And we're going to come and proclaim you through our living, through our words, that God, you want to be in a relationship with us. And we don't come to the celebration of this meal because we're worthy, or because we've been good enough. We come because you called us. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. And Jesus, you're the only one who could take on that role for us, and you did it by dying on the cross so that anyone who believes in their heart that you are Lord and Savior is invited to this table, and we want to welcome you to this place, Lord. We want to welcome you into our hearts and give us understanding in our minds. In the name of the one who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We hope you found this message to be encouraging. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and at bhprez.org for more information.